Amen. Well, have a seat. Thank you all for being with us today. It's good to see you. And I must apologize. I had a really cool-looking slide presentation put together that um, just isn't happening. I did my best, and it's just not going to come through. So I emailed out the uh, a draft of the slides to everybody in the church email. So if you don't get the church email, but you're sitting next to someone, what that does, they could pass you the link, and you could access the notes uh, right there on your phone, and then I will you know, forgive you for using your phone in church since you're going to be using it for notes. Uh, but I want to address something. Now, you all know that we have been doing a series on First Sunday on the doctrines of God, uh, or specifically as it relates to the Holy Spirit. Uh, we typically do this on First Sunday where I teach doctrine bit by bit, and we address like a key theological term or concept that we need to know as a church. Um, we are taking a brief pause from our study of the Holy Spirit because I believe we need to address something huge that's happening that will inevitably give us gospel opportunities and put us in a position where we will have to defend our stand theologically. Um, and so the issue that I'm talking about is abortion. Uh, we know, if you all are following the news, that the Supreme Court is in the process of, Lord willing, overturning Roe versus Wade. Uh, and uh, it, the Dobbs versus Jackson case that is being decided, we know that there was a leak of a draft opinion that was to be the majority opinion on the Dobbs versus Jackson case. Uh, right now, that is, uh, if everything moves forward as expected, it will mean the overturn of Roe versus Wade. But the leak of the document, as best we understand, was designed to try to cause stir so that the justices would be pressured into changing their minds. Uh, so this is not a guarantee that there's going to be an overturn of Roe. Uh, what we do know is an announcement is going to be made soon, one way or the other, and it will lead to discussions. Even now already, I have had more opportunities to communicate the biblical stance on life and the gospel than I probably have in a while. And so what I would like for us to do is address a couple of key things here. First of all, I want to kind of set the stage in understanding, and then we will primarily be in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 9, uh, and then we will also hit Matthew 28. Uh, so there'll be a couple of other ones in there, but if you've got those three, those are going to be our main ones for today. Uh, a couple of things you need to know about this decision. I recognize this is not sermon. This is just introduction to what we're going to talk about. Uh, but if the Roe versus Wade decision, also, also it will be Planned Parenthood versus Casey, uh, those two uh, Supreme Court decisions, if overturned, will not result in an immediate ban of abortion in the United States. What it will do is kind of return to what is probably the most constitutional uh, system, and that will return it back to the states to make decisions on whether or not to allow abortion. Now, we know, biblically, uh, all murder is wrong, and so we believe that every state should put in a full-on ban. But if we're talking about structurally how it works in our country, yes, that's probably how it's going to have to be. But we need to understand, this will not result in an abortion ban immediately. All right? Um, what will probably happen is that there will be several states that will be, uh, I was going to say free states as opposed to slave states, but it's the same kind of concept. We will have... Uh, we will have don't murder babies states, and we will have murder baby states. That's going to be the reality. Uh, we think, and this is according to Guttmacher Institute, which is actually a very pro-death oriented group, 
uh, they believe that Ohio will make some kind of a ruling that will be effectively an abortion ban. Uh, there are states like my home state of West Virginia uh, that already had a pre-row ban that will go back into, uh, into existence. And so, praise the Lord for the Mountaineers. Um, but we need to understand, regardless of what happens, the issue will still be at the forefront. My wife is laughing because she's like, West Virginia. Well, I would have said it anyway. I had planned to say it. It was in my sermon notes before I knew they were going to be here today. Um, so here, here's what we need to understand, though. Even here in Ohio, there will need to be multiple discussions on the issue. It will be such a hot topic, I would say, that abortion is the blood sacrament of the anti-God culture. Um, They don't want to lose it. And uh, we're going to go more into what all this means here. We're going to study some things in the Old Testament. But I'm just bringing this up to say... This is still going to be a big deal, whatever the decision is. And so we as believers should be ready to give a biblical defense of the position on life, as well as be able to bring it right to the gospel. Because I will tell you, if I'm not proclaiming the gospel in this, I'm missing the biggest point here. Uh, A couple of stats I want to share all in the means of introduction. And as you all know, and I say this every time, I do long introductions and fast sermons. So if you're worried, you're like, this Dan guy's still in intro. Don't worry. The sermon goes really fast once the introduction is done. Uh, A couple of things. First of all, uh, of women who have abortion, roughly 60% already have kids. Uh, It's kind of a myth to think that only women uh, who don't have kids get abortion, sadly. Um, That's not the case. Uh, 40% attend church regularly. 52% claim to be Christians. 85% are unmarried. Um, 90%... 90 say that they would choose to not abort the baby if the father would marry them. And I'll I'll just point out a side note. In the law of God, he has a provision for when a man and a woman have come together in passion but outside of marriage, and the plan is for God, for them to be married under God and make it righteous. Now, I recognize there are circumstances of abuse and other things, right? We can address that separately, but... If we just followed God's plan, we're talking about 90% of abortions being ended. Uh, I also like to point out that in, in some cases, I would say that it is the log in the eye of the church when such a large number of abortions are procured by people who claim to be believers. Um, sadly, even people who claim to be evangelicals. I work at a crisis pregnancy center. It is not uncommon for someone to come in who is abortion-minded. They've come to us not knowing that we're a pro-life pregnancy center. And they will say something to the effect of, I'm going to get this abortion. And we'll say, well, you know this is wrong. You, you say you're a believer. You know this is wrong. And they'll say, I'm just going to ask for forgiveness later. I'm going to tell you, that is not a heart of repentance. Um, more on that later. Here's the other thing. 20% of pregnancies in the U.S. end in abortion. Um, this is not a small thing. Uh, we have seen, uh, we know that in Ohio, chemical abortions are on the rise as uh, surgical abortions are diminished. Um, We still have a lot of abortions going on. They're just happening in a different way. Um, So all that said, we need to see what does God say about this issue specifically and how as believers can we respond to this? Uh, Are you all with me that we're going to equip a little bit today? So Genesis 1, starting in verse 26, uh, God has created all these wonderful things and now he is choosing to create man. And he says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, 
after, the, uh, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. And in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Notice how many times the reiteration of the image of God is built into just a couple of verses here. Verse 28, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Can we point out a few things that are happening here? God is absolutely reiterating the reality that humanity, distinct from any other animal on the planet, has been created in God's image. And right after that, God says, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. So God says, I've created you in my image, and I want lots of you all over the earth. Uh, by the way, a little side note, this command gets ignored often. Uh, we have elevated personal comfort. Even in evangelicalism, we've kind of been like, yeah, you know, if you only want one kid, if you don't want any kids, if you, you know, whatever, just live what's going to make you happy. I will say, if God wants us to have babies. Um, if Dave and uh, if Dave Barnett and his wife were here, they'd be high-fiving. They've got like seven kids now, right? Um, I, I'm not saying you have to have seven kids. What we do know is there is a command to be fruitful and multiply. And I recognize there's a whole lot of wounds. There's a whole lot of difficulties. There's a whole lot of people who haven't been able to have children. No condemnation. I'm just pointing out the decision to have children or not is really up to God more than it's up to you. Be prudent, be wise in your timing, but he commanded us to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I want us to understand this a little bit further because what this is going to get into very quickly is we're going to see that God has commanded life. He wants to see the multiplication of his image. And what we will see as we trace throughout the history of, uh, of everything, <laughs> throughout scripture, that paganism seems to take the opposite track. Either you follow Jesus and you want to see God's image propagated throughout the earth, or you do not follow God and you want to see less of his image. More on that later. So uh, I need to ask a question, though. I'm going to go back. I know we already did catechism today, um, and I know that we did really good on them. I was really proud of how well you all have them memorized. But I need to ask question number four. Does anybody remember question number four? How and why did God create us? Kids, how and why did God create us? in his image to glorify him. Way to go. It's kind of like what we just read in Genesis 1, right? That God created us in his image, male and female, to bring him glory. Male and female built into that, by the way. Uh, I taught about two years ago on biblical anthropology. I won't go into great detail in it, but good sermons to go back and listen to. So with that in mind, let's flip right over to Genesis chapter 9. So we have at the beginning of creation, God makes this command related to the image of God. He says to be fruitful and multiply. And then in Genesis 9, it gets revisited. Anybody know what's just happened right before Genesis 9? Global flood. So we have all of this sinfulness, and God says, uh, we're going to hit the reset button here. Um, all this destruction, Noah and his family are spared. And here, as Noah and his family are coming off the ark, getting ready to essentially start life on earth again, God says this, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Notice something here? This sounds a whole lot like Genesis 1. So when God created the earth the first time, he said to be fruitful and multiply. And he says, man is created in my image. Now, the second, this is not recreation, but as you have Noah essentially fulfilling something very similar to what Adam was to in multiplication, God gives him the same kind of command. And he says, I've created you in my image. Go and multiply. And then how interesting here, he actually says, murder is wrong because it's the destruction of the image of God. And so he actually calls for the death penalty. Just pointing that out, that here in Genesis 9, we have a reiteration of the image of God and the mandate to multiply, and then he builds in capital punishment into it. That is not by accident, brothers and sisters. And so what we start seeing here from about Genesis chapter 9, looking through the rest of the Old Testament, is that there becomes this pretty clear dichotomy between the things of God and the things that are against God. And the things of God seem to involve the multiplication of God's image, and the things against God seem to imply the destruction of God's image and the mitigation of multiplication. And so we're going to get into this in a little bit more detail, but can I just tell you, if you are in a conversation on the issue of abortion, inevitably, this kind of stuff is going to come up related to, man, this is actually murder. And if I am going to talk about something that is actually murder, and I don't actually lead to the gospel, I'm missing something, brothers. And so I will turn, and sisters, not to neglect my sisters, so I will turn very quickly to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. I should be bringing this into conversation. If I'm talking about Genesis 9 and the fact that Scripture is calling for the capital punishment of murderers because the image of God has been slayed, then 1 Peter 2.24 seems to have even more weight. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Notice what is happening. Jesus on the cross is taking the death penalty. In fact, not just the death penalty, but the eternal death penalty, because God's wrath is poured out on him in the cross. He is bearing our sin. We call it substitutionary atonement. And so God's wrath is poured out on him. So both the temporal death and the eternal death, Jesus is paying the price for. Don't miss it. And because it is easy, we are in, no question, a cultural war. It, that's just what it is, and it might just get worse. Don't ever, ever miss the opportunity for the gospel. Every time we talk about life, I will tell you, I have sat with men in the abortion center who are telling me they are planning to pay for the murder of their own baby in the womb. And I will say, when I'm talking to men, I'm maybe firmer than I'm talking when I am when I talk to women. And I look at him, and I, I did this. I looked at this guy, and I said, you, you are planning to murder your child. That is sin. You are way out of line, and by the way, you're not acting like a real man is supposed to act. You are commanded to provide and protect. This is what you do if you're a man. Amen. Step up and provide. But you know what? I didn't stop there. Because I stopped there, what I'm essentially doing is saying like, yeah, you stink. Um, I go right to, but guess what? This same Jesus who commanded you not do this also 
provides forgiveness for your sins. And I deliver the gospel. Brothers and sisters, every time we talk about abortion, we should deliver the gospel. No exceptions. Every time. Uh, Similarly, obviously this is an easy one, but Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. The payment, so just as God called for the destruction of the murderer, so he says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How it is no accident that God says, this is the penalty for what you are doing, and here I have provided redemption for it. Praise the Lord. All right, so looking throughout the Old Testament, though, I'm, you guys know I have a tendency to kind of get theological, pastoral, uh, slash professorial, and I start answering questions. I mean, I just know this is what I do. So sometimes, uh, I will just say, sometimes my sermons flow in this nice, like, natural, and sometimes I'm like, oh, we got to answer this question. Um, uh, so this is what I'm doing. I'm addressing some of these key things. Um, I would just point out that infanticide in the entirety of the Old Testament seems to be directly related to paganism and idolatry. And essentially, any time the children of Israel were not obeying God, what essentially happened is they went right to murder. I will just draw attention. It's not always just them. I will acknowledge. Exodus 1.16, we see where Pharaoh is calling for the destruction of the Hebrew infants because he's trying to prevent them from rising up and overthrowing his tyrannical rule. Similarly, in Matthew 2.16, infanticide is used as a way to try to prevent the coming of the Messiah. I would just point out, lots of babies died, both in Exodus and in the first century, in the attempt to stop God's people from being rescued. Both times it failed, because his one planned Redeemer made it through by his sovereign plan. But I would just point out, in both cases, what we have is paganism, killing babies. More on that momentarily. In 2 Kings 16.13 and 2 Chronicles 28.3, we see accounts of King Ahaz sacrificing his son in the fire in a pagan ritual. Little side note, pagan rituals, any type of sacrifice, was always in order, you were giving something to get something. It is inherently manipulative, and the idea was that Ahaz wanted something that he believed these demonic gods could give him, and by sacrificing his child in the fire, he was going to get something that he wanted. Lots of things going wrong with that, not the least of which he's not trusting God, who gives all good gifts and doesn't withhold things that are good for us. So he's not trusting God for that, but then he's willing to sacrifice his own child to get something. It doesn't get more heinous than this. And you will see even God's people, as they find themselves wanting things that God does not want them to have, they go right to sacrifice even their own children to get something. 2 Kings 21.6, similarly King Manasseh sacrifices his son in fire in pagan ritual. Uh, We even see Gehenna, Uh, in uh, referenced in the New Testament would have been the place where the Hebrews were engaged in ritual child sacrifice on a large scale. I don't think it's an accident that God says, be fruitful, multiply, make sure my image gets everywhere, that the further people get away from the things of God, the more they want to kill their children, usually so that they can get something temporal in the now. Um, let's see, what else do we see? Ezekiel 20, 30, and 31, God's judgment on Israel specifically mentions child sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, have you kind of noticed this theme? 
Paganism always wants to see the destruction of the image of God. God always wants to see his image multiplied. And even the people of God, when syncretism engages with this idolatry and with what is supposed to be worship of God, we see that very quickly sacrifice of children becomes a part of it. And I wish that it wasn't the case now, but what I know from the stats we read earlier, it's still an issue. People who claim to be believers are still engaged in this. Um, Breaking my heart. Here's the other thing I would also add, um, is that this culture of death goes beyond just murdering children. There's a wider issue that's all connected. Proverbs 8, 35 and 36 says, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Notice, it doesn't say all who hate me love to die. All who hate me love death. If we look at even Romans 1, where it says that those who don't know God actually hate him and suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And that what we see is that God gives them over to their own destruction. The homosexuality and transgenderism that's described there in Romans chapter 1 is not seen merely as an extra abomination, but it is seen as a punishment in itself. Those who fail to find me injure themselves and love death. I will just add on in this, as long as we're harping on things that are probably going to get us bumped off of the internet eventually. Um, We, of course, see this in abortion. Notice homosexuality and transgenderism, one of the key things it does, it destroys the opportunity to have more children. Not only is it a direct attack against the image of God, as described in Genesis 1.26, but we see beyond that, that men, uh, I won't go into detail, but terrible things are happening to children right now that are stunting them and ruining their bodies for life in this transgenderism. You'll also notice that um, those who love death love population control. They love eugenics. They love euthanasia because they don't want to see God's image propagated throughout the earth. This is a sad and terrible reality, but it is the same thing that says, for whoever finds me finds life and whoever and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself and all who hate me love death. It's one or the other. God doesn't say, you know, there's some people that aren't saved, but they're generally good people, right? It's either you love me and you love life, or you hate me and you love death. And that's just the way it plays out. There's no in-between. And I will say, by God's wonderful common grace, as a culture here in the West, we have experienced what we would call Christianization, doesn't mean that everybody's a Christian or that we're this perfect Christian culture, but the holdover of the kingdom of God leads to good things, general morality. And even though not everybody was a believer, there was a general understanding that like, hey, certain things are bad and we shouldn't do those things. But notice what happens as a culture rejects the things of God, God slowly just, what does he say? He says, I give them over to their sinful desires. We are seeing that now. Little side note of encouragement, brothers. And sisters, the gospel is still powerful. God, Jesus is still on the throne. We are still seeing the gospel spread throughout all the world. And uh, this might sound kind of post-millennial of me, but let me just tell you, the gospel is going to get everywhere. Keep preaching it. In fact, the issue is that we haven't been preaching it enough. Uh, I'll just say, preach the gospel. Watch Watch and see what happens, because we still know murderers' hearts change. 
God still takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. It still works. Everybody with me? Any questions so far? All right. So, side note, I want to think, as we're going to have some of these conversations, Genesis 1, Genesis 9 should be huge. Um, Proverbs 8, 35, and 36 should be huge. Uh, some more are coming up later, but everybody's with me. I'll just address a couple of quick questions that come up when we're discussing abortion, just so that you're familiar with them. This is not so much direct scripture as it is just like the application of biblical truth to the questions that we know will be asked. Uh, first of all, the common one, what's the most common thing we hear from the left related to abortion? Anybody know? My body, my choice. I always like to point out that the child in the womb of the mother has a separate DNA structure, is definite by definition is not her body recognize that she's clearly dependent on her body all those all realities not her body um second uh one common thing that said as well if we if we ban abortions women are just going to get abortions anyway and it's just going to be more dangerous uh i always like to say people murder people now doesn't mean we should allow it like Done? Um, like, should we, should we just not have any recourse when that happens? No. Um, you also hear the argument that, like, well, you know, women are just going to get more dangerous abortions. And I'm, my thought is, like, first of all, that's not on us. Like, uh, what am I going to say? Like, that if we allowed for murder, that then murderers would be a little bit safer. They wouldn't be murdering in back alleys. They would be murdering, you know, in storefronts. That doesn't make it any better. It's still on the murderer. More on that later on. Uh, second thing, that, or a third thing they often say is, keep your religion off my body. Um, I always just like to point out, first of all, Jesus is king everywhere, all the time. Doesn't really matter whether you're a Christian or not. Jesus is still king. You better obey him. Um, second, I would say, like, are we just going to say there's no moral standard ever for anything? Um, no. Like, at no point do you get to murder people. Simple as that. Done. Uh, four, the common thing that you'll hear them say was a fetus has no right to live in a woman's body without her consent. Usually I would say, first of all, um, assuming she engaged in consensual intercourse, uh, that's when she consented. Uh, second, I would say mere inconvenience is not a reason for me to kill someone, right? Like that's, that's not okay. Um, I... I, I don't get to be driving down the road and say, well, you know, it's not my fault that that child was standing there and I just sped up and ran him over. No, it doesn't work that way. Like, inconvenience is not a reason for me to kill someone. More on that later. Um, the common one that gets brought up also is what about in cases of rape? Um, because some people will say, would you not have an, an, an exception for when a woman has been raped? And I, I, I would bring up, like, okay, who is the perpetrator when someone has been raped? Or the rapist. Like, do we do we kill somebody else for what he did? Well, no. Like, the child is the is innocent in this, no matter how you play it. At no point, we don't go and kill random people for something someone else did. I also like to bring up uh, a little side note. The law of God calls for capital punishment for rape. It does. Um, and so I will readily, when I hear someone talking about like the terrors of rape i say praise the lord god hates it too i am so sorry he wants that person dead too uh, more on that another time uh, another comment that gets brought up uh, a zygote or a fetus or an embryo is not a person and i usually just respond with by what standard 
uh, in Psalm 139 and in Luke 1, uh, the language is very much that a child in the womb is a person. God is the one who defines persons, not you. Um, That's almost too easy of one. Here's the other thing I would bring up. Um, I know I'm just rifling out a few of these, but hopefully these are helpful. Is this helpful information? Is it? Okay, good. Um, Don't let them say... Side note, yeah, I meant, that was why I was so excited about the slides. But yeah, use the slides as reference later on. Can I just tell you something? Don't let them call a baby a fetus. Side note, a fetus, is, I mean, it, it's, it's just Latin for baby. But it's interesting, I don't, you know, go around saying like, ich habe keine Zeit when I'm in an English conversation, right? I don't, I say, well, I don't have time. I don't say, ich habe keine Zeit. I don't just throw in a word outside of the language I'm using. Right? We don't generally use the term fetus. I, I don't talk about, oh, look at the beautiful fetuses running around. We don't do that. So like, I don't give them that opportunity because we know what they're trying to do is divorce the reality, divorce the truth just a little bit. If they can disengage a little bit, it makes it a little bit more palatable to talk about baby murder. Side note, baby murder is what it is. I, u- I will use the direct terminology. Sometimes if I want to be a little soft, I- I'll say, you are talking about killing your baby. Right? I will use that language because I don't want them to get away with it. Uh, a little side note, though, if they say fetus, just stop them and say, hey, just gently, like, hey, uh, we're not speaking Latin right now. Could, could, we just, could we just use the English word? Like, fetus means baby. Let's use the English word. Make sure that they're in, because it's forcing them into the discussion. More on that in a little bit. Uh, Here's another thing I will say often comes up uh, in the discussions we have with people who are planning to murder babies. Uh, They will try to make a moral or ethical claim about you and what you should do. Have you guys seen this? Have you guys experienced this? Where they'll say, you shouldn't tell me what to do. Or you guys are trying to do such and such and you shouldn't do that. Let me just give you, this is a beautiful response. Anytime, any apologetic discussion, just say very gently, because we are to do it with gentleness and respect. And I will say that doesn't mean not firmly, because we are dealing with, we're dealing with the murderers. Yeah, I I will always like to say too, like, you know, I call my, my puppy in a different voice than I yell at the coyotes, right? It doesn't mean I'm being disrespectful, but sometimes if something dangerous is here, you have to use really firm language, right? I will be gentle, respectful as much as I can, but sometimes we've got to be really firm. Uh, but I would just say, use the phrase, by what standard? When someone is trying to say, well, you shouldn't do this, or blah, 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 and they, they're making an appeal to ethics or even an appeal to truth. Just throw out that phrase, well, by what standard? Put it on them to think about. Because what they're essentially doing is borrowing from the biblical worldview, which holds to the fact that God has created what is right and wrong. And they're trying to come from an atheistic worldview most of the time, or from some twisted, if they're coming from a Christian worldview, no problem, we got scripture. Um, Make the atheists think about the fact that they have no basis for morality. And just say, by what standard? Help me understand. And they'll normally say, well, you just shouldn't. Everybody knows you shouldn't. And I'm like... Well, obviously, serial killers don't know you shouldn't. Why? Why? What, what is your standard? And force them to think it through, because ultimately what's happening is they don't realize it, but the common grace that God has put in them, the image of God that they are, knows deep down that God exists, there is such a thing as right and wrong, and they're appealing to that because they're created in God's image too, and their very nature testifies to the fact that God is. 
So make them think about it. Ask why, what standard. Make them think through. Because it's beautiful when they get stuck. Because you get to be so gentle, so unassuming. Like, help me understand. You know, you're telling this and you're saying that there's not morality for this, but there is for this. So how does that add up? Explain this to me. Force them to, like, the burden of proof is on them. Force them to think about it. And I will tell you, they will get stuck. They will generally not concede right there. But you leave them with a rock in their shoe. As, uh, I think, is it Frank Turek that talks, talks about a rock in the shoe? No, Gregory Kokel. He's like, you leave them thinking. Because now they're realizing that they're engaging in a cognitive dissonance that they can't get over. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. That's why I say, present the gospel every time. You get the gospel in there, and you get them thinking about the fact that, like, my position doesn't make sense. And let the Holy Spirit do his penetrating work to redeem that heart. Oh, all right, so I'm excited. I'm sorry. But you guys are with me still? Cool. I'm going to cover a couple of other of these things. Um, one of the, yeah. Yeah. So a um, couple of things. One, that very guy, because I'm there's I'm thinking a very specific person. He did not repent and believe the gospel right there. But he and his girlfriend put that baby up for adoption and spared its life. Um, cause, which, by the way, almost never happens. People will have the baby and keep it, or they will murder the baby. The thing that is furthest from their mind, that they're most uncomfortable with, is someone else having their baby. Which I'm like, you already know, that's your child. You can't imagine that child in someone else's arms because it's your child. Anyway, that was it's almost miraculous when they choose for adoption. Um, a little side note, uh, that's a different thing, uh, that particular circumstance, but I would say if they're saying that, they're like, we're just going to ask for forgiveness later, I would go right to, then you are not repentant, right? You, I would say you are thinking about God as a cosmic vending machine of forgiveness. Jesus demands repentance for forgiveness. It, it's not just that like, oh, I say these magic words and I'm okay. He talks about you turn from the sin. Repentance is turning. If you're already planning to do the sin while you're claiming you're going to, like, that's just not repentance. Not that God couldn't genuinely forgive them later on if they had a genuine heart of repentance. But I would look to a person like that who's claiming to be a believer, and I would say, if I'm looking at what Galatians 5 says about the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit, you are now living and willfully engaging and planning to do the things that God says is what will keep you from inheriting the kingdom of God. So I would just say, I would just flatly tell them, you are probably not saved. You might be, I don't know, but if you're planning to do things that are directly against the law of God, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They know me and they, they, they follow me. So I would say, if you're planning to not do that, you should be really scared as to whether or not you're saved. I would never say, well, you're just not saved. I hope I wouldn't. Um, but they should take they should take it very seriously. But that's a really good question, Dan. That's a really good question. Um, cool. All right. So I'm gonna I'm just gonna address some of the questions that come up and give us some answers for them so that we're ready. You guys with me on it? All right. So one of the things that comes up is, well, hey, should Christians really engage in the political arena? Have you all heard this one? They're like, well, you know, you, Christians, you're supposed to stay in the realm of church, let politics be politics. And I would say, I don't think we're supposed to play political games. The shystering that is associated with politics, I don't think we're supposed to do. But we are supposed to engage and proclaim the truth in the political sphere. Here's why. Matthew 28:18, which we're going to talk about later, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know what that means? Jesus has authority over the Supreme Court. 
That means Jesus has authority over Biden. Jesus has authority over the Lorain County Sheriff. Jesus has authority over the mayor of Amherst. Jesus is king, and um, if we're going to really believe that, then every law should match up with it. This is actually what Romans 13 is about. Romans 13 gets twisted often. Romans 13 says they are God's servants to apply his law. If they are not applying his law, guess what? By definition, it is lawlessness that they're trying to apply, and we as Christians are required by God to disobey it. More on that later. But yes, we should engage in the political arena. Uh, second, there is no conflict between preaching the gospel and establishing laws that honor God. Isaiah 1.16, Amos 5, Micah 6.8, Luke 11. We can go through several passages and say, human laws should match God's laws. And if they don't, they're lawlessness. More on that in a second, by the way. Uh, also, third, we are commanded to rescue those being away, led away to slaughter. Proverbs 24. Commanded, brothers and sisters, to rescue those being led away to slaughter. More on that later. Uh, Isaiah 10, God hates evil laws and judges makers of evil laws. He actually says in Isaiah 6.10, woe, um, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah 10, he says, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. So you know what that means? If there is such a thing as iniquitous decrees described in scripture, that must mean that certain laws are iniquity. He actually says it right here. So that must mean that we certainly cannot obey all of those laws or let them stay on the books. We ought to do something to change them. Um, and side note, based on Acts 5.29 and several other ones, disobey them. I'll just be really honest. We are to obey God rather than men. If law goes against God's law, it is no law at all. I mean, as simple as that. Um, more on that later. So Isaiah 10, 1 and 2, I'll just read this. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people, uh, the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. Notice that in he's, when he's describing iniquitous decrees and casting woe upon those who make them, he actually mentions widows and fatherless. He's, I don't think that when this was written, God wasn't thinking about abortion. I think he was thinking about a whole lot more than that. But he's specifically calling out these terrorists, I don't know another word for it, who hold positions claiming authority that build decrees in that make it hard for women to live in accordance with God's law, and they make the fatherless that are in their wombs suffer. I don't think that, I don't think that God was speaking accidentally when he mentions them specifically in Isaiah 10. More on that later. So another question that comes up, and this comes up, by the way, uh, a lot from the quote-unquote pro-life movement. Um, they will say, what if we just do this incrementally, guys? You know, it just is a hard pill to swallow to say we're going to abor abolish abortion. Have you guys noticed this one? Like, that just seems like a hard one to swallow. And I'm like, well, would it seem like a hard thing to just say that we're going to abolish murder? Like, why, why is that a hard thing? And so incrementalism, and I would say there are some good, faithful people that are just doing their best to push the best laws they can. Um, but we normally give in way too much. Uh, is what we've noticed. And even now, as the Supreme Court is about to flip things around, some of our, some of our states that would have enacted pro-life laws didn't because they were afraid that it would get overturned, and now they're going to have to play catch-up to be able to put laws into place to protect babies. So I would say incrementalism is not the right way. Um, I would say Proverbs 2.10, unjust weights and measures are an abomination to God. 
A lot of these provisionalist incremental things, they say, well, what we're going to do is say, like, if a baby is just, you know, younger than this age, that you can kill it. Or the big one that I see is they're like, well, you're allowed to murder babies in the womb unless you're murdering them because they have Down syndrome. And I'm like, that's an unjust weight and measure. If I'm going to say that one baby is safe and another is not, that's an unjust weight and measure. I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, I don't want to be a part of promoting what God says is an, is an abomination. I don't want unjust weights and measures. I, with that said, if the only thing that's on the table is a more pro-life law, I'll, I'll vote as best I can in that direction, but I'm not going to sit there and advocate for a law that involves killing some babies and not others. More on that later. Um, all right. So another big question that comes up is, what about separation of church and state? I already mentioned these. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is king. Civil authorities are supposed to be subject to him. We really addressed all that already. I would point out that the establishment clause in the First Amendment is designed to protect the church not from the state, not protect the state from the church. Um, more on that later, another time. Another thing that comes up is, what about Romans 13? We already talked about this. Romans 13 is designed that the magistrates obey and apply God's law. There is no reason for me to not try to change laws to match up. Simple as that. Um, another big question that comes up is about what about politics and our testimony? Aren't we just supposed to be nice? Um, and I would say, can you imagine standing next to the idolatrous Israelites who are standing right next to the idolater pagans, throwing their children into the idol of Moloch as it burns and as the children scream and they burn to their death. Can you imagine standing there next to that and saying like, yeah, you know, they're going to be really mad if I try to stop them. That's gonna, it's going to hurt my testimony if I say, guys, this is a bad idea. No, that's, I, testimony is not niceness. We are commanded to rescue those being led away to the slaughter. Do you want to have a good testimony? Stand for the things of God. Hold to the law of God. Gently and respectfully call people away from the murder of children, among every other thing else that is against the law of God. Simple as that. But please don't worry that your lack of niceness is going to hurt your testimony. Be gentle, be respectful. But niceness is not what your testimony is about. All right, so Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Um, it's funny because there are people that would say, Dan, like, how is this really related to the gospel? I'm like, well, anytime we talk about sin, the gospel is the next thing. But then the next thing it comes up, like, well, Dan, what, how does this have anything to do with, you know, like this, this, all this political stuff and whatever, how does that have anything to do with, like, with following Jesus? I'm just going to read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which we are going to obey today at the pool after this. This is in Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So he's king. We already talked about that. Therefore, go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Notice this. Jesus is king over everything. Because of that, I should go and make disciples of all the nations. That's all the people groups. That's not just nation states. That's everybody, everyone and everything. I am to go and say, Jesus is king. Follow him. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That just sure sounds like the commands of God. I'm supposed to go and tell them. I'm supposed to say, Jesus is king. Repent and believe the gospel. I'm supposed to take this to every nation, right? Not just to the ones that seem kind of Christian-y. Not just to Israel. Not just to the United States. I'm supposed to take this everywhere. And then when I get there and I proclaim this gospel, I'm supposed to say, now you've got to observe everything. 
not just some things, not just incremental laws. They're to obey all that he has commanded. Guess what? One of the things he commanded is don't murder your children. And then he says this, And behold, I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. Always. So when I go and I proclaim the gospel to uh, at the pro-life pregnancy center, is Jesus with me? Yes, he's with me. When my brother Austin goes to the abortion mill and he stands outside and he proclaims the gospel and pleads with them to spare their children, is Jesus with him? Yes, he's with him. When I go and call a congressman and say, be a man, protect children, or you are a tyrant and you will not get my support ever again. When I do that, Jesus is with me. If I stand outside of whatever Capitol building and I plead for them to make laws that honor God, Jesus is with me, right? When I sit next to the person at the baseball game and this thing comes up and people are, you know, we talk about what's going on in the news and we have this conversation just like we've been describing and I share the gospel with him, Jesus is with me. He's with me everywhere to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, this is no joke. The abortion issue is a wonderful opportunity for us to proclaim the law of God and call people to repentance and faith. It is a wonderful opportunity that God is giving us because it just sure looks like we're going to win this one. And even if we don't win it this time, we're going to win it eventually because Jesus is king. And he says he's with us to the very end of the age until this job is done. And then he's going to come in his fullness. Praise God. All that said, a few resources I want to mention. Freethestates.org, wonderful organization led by Christians that will give you great resources. And their whole thing is like, let's put this issue back in the hands of the states because we can win at the state level. We are winning at the state levels. Praise God. Uh, second, endabortionnow.com, uh, good, faithful, reformed Baptists. They go and share the gospel outside of abortion clinics. They will connect with churches like ours to assist us in doing whatever we want to try to advocate for pro-life. They equip you to share the gospel at abortion clinics and to talk to your senators. Good stuff. Uh, the other thing is cornerstoneanswers.org. Um, there's a lie from the left that says that pro-life pregnancy centers only care about you having your baby. Um, I, I'm right now teaching classes and supporting people with teenage kids. Like, we, we help long-term. We've got baby resources. We've got medical supplies. We've got doula services. Um, and then also we connect people with churches. Pretty much everything anybody could need. For the entirety of their child's childhood, we have some support for it or we'll get them connected to support. Uh, a couple of other things, I'll recommend two documentaries. One is called Babies Are Murdered Here, and the other one is called Babies Are Still Murdered Here. Um, great documentaries. Um, I will say, uh, one of the things you will see is how at times the, uh, the pro-life movement, when it doesn't become gospel-focused, tends to capitulate to the left. Um, good documentary stuff in there. Uh, I will also say, we've already mentioned this, but I'll just review, say the gospel every time. And we're calling out, hopefully gently and respectfully, but we're calling people out for really heinous sin. Don't do that to somebody unless you deliver the gospel right behind it. Simple as that. Here's the other thing I would say, gently. If there are those among us who this is part of your past and you remember it with shame, we just tell you God's grace is big. Um, when we see Paul describing... Uh, all types of sin, including murder, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, such were some of you. Brothers and sisters, there is not one among us that is without sin. God's grace is big. His grace is huge. Praise the Lord for it. Don't sit in shame and condemnation. I would also say, if you find yourself in a situation where you're like, oh no, what will my church say? Uh, I'm pregnant outside of wedlock. What, what will happen? You know what will happen? We will 
throw our arms around you and say, we love you. How can we help? Um, is this guy a good guy? Let's plan a wedding. We'll do what it takes. We will make sure that you are loved and cared for and supported because it's biblical. Oh, all that said, last thing, Proverbs 24, 10 through 12. He says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being take away, taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay every man according to his work? You know, there's no question that he uses really manly language here when he's saying rescue those being led away to the slaughter. He says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And then he also brings up, well, if you say, well, we didn't know this, he's going to say, the Lord knows your heart. He weighs your heart. He knows it. He will repay you. Um, Brothers and sisters, let's rescue those being led away to the slaughter. Um, If that means a gentle, loving conversation you have while you're sitting with your neighbor, praise God. If that means that you stand outside the abortion clinic and proclaim the gospel with gentleness and respect, praise God. If that means you call a senator, or if that means you call a congressman, which we might have to do soon, praise God. Um, Preach the gospel. Thank you all for bearing with us as we addressed this pretty big issue. Um, I am going to pray, and then who is on for gospel today? Thank you, brother. Um, Good stuff. As I'm getting ready to pray, I want to mention a couple of things, side notes. Uh, One, we've got books for you up here. I'm sorry, I've been radically negligent. Christy um, managed to get us some free books from Jackie Hill Perry. Um, And so if you would like one, uh, or even if you don't want one, I mean, we got a lot of them. Um, So uh, come and grab a book. Uh, The other thing is we are doing, uh, I've said abortion so many times, I almost said that. Um, We are doing baptisms today at our pool. Um, so if you, uh, we've got five people to get baptized today. Praise God. If you want to get baptized, um, this is a great day to do it. Um, we'll even get you to change your clothes, I think. Um, let me know, but we're going to go directly after this. I'm going to grill some hot dogs because I know it's going to be lunchtime. But we're going to baptize in our pool at our house. If you want to go and you don't know the way to get there, let me know. I'll give you directions. I think just about everybody has our address. Um, a few of you might not, but we'll get you. Um, we're going to baptize today. Um, I'm loving. We're gonna we proclaim the gospel today. Proclaim the kingship of Christ. We're gonna baptize today. Man, we're just Matthew 28. We're just nailing it by God's grace. Um, so with all that said, um, I'm gonna pray and turn it over to Brian for the gospel. God, thank you so much. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you love babies. Thank you that you love us. Uh, thank you that for those who have aborted children, your grace is sufficient. Thank you for those who have had babies outside of wedlock. Your grace is sufficient. Thank you for those of us who have gossiped and slandered. Your grace is sufficient. For those who have had fits of anger, your grace is sufficient. Uh, Lord, thank you that um, for those who have engaged in homosexual sin or transgender sin, Lord, your grace is sufficient. There is no sin outside of the reach of your grace. And so, Lord, would you help us to faithfully proclaim your gospel? And now that I'm just going to pray that the Supreme Court would make a decision for life. Um, and then that our state would enact a full-on ban of abortion here. And then, Lord, that that would sweep throughout the nation, that this would be a catalyst for the proclamation of the gospel and for your kingdom to come in its fullness. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.